invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to Romans 12. Our scripture reading this morning is Romans chapter 12, verses 1 through 2. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. This is the word of the Lord. Human beings are hardwired for worship. Why would I say that? Well, consider the difference between the crowds and the announcers at some of the college football games yesterday and great white sharks operating off of the coast of Australia or bears in Alaska in the annual salmon run. I mean, listen, bears and sharks do some amazing things. Have you ever seen some of the videos of great white sharks? These are massive, massive fish. Great white sharks coming up out of the water, flying up into the air, and catching a a little seal for a meal. It's amazing. It's it's stunning to watch. Or, or, Or how about grizzly bears standing in the water as salmon are swimming upstream, jumping up one level so they can keep swimming in their annual run, and these grizzly bears, with such agility, grab a salmon for dinner. Now, I can assure you, I trust we would agree, like, there's no shark party under the water with another great white with a a mic and his little flipper, and he's like, all right, here comes Big Gray. You got to watch this. This guy's the most amazing. Look at that 15 feet in the air, 9.3 on the landing. None of that, right? Well, how about the comparison? How about yesterday? I mean, I don't even need to describe for some of the college football fans among us. The 80 to 110,000 person sanctuaries, right? The financial sacrifice it cost for a ticket. The, The time sacrifice that true fans make. The overflow of verbal praise from the lips of the church leader. Oh, How about the announcer beckoning us to come and adore? Now, look, I say that, and I'm not saying we shouldn't enjoy football. I love watching football. But it and so many other things can so easily rise to a place in our lives that it shouldn't be. And so this morning, as we're wrapping up our series, 10 Reasons Jesus Came to Die, I want to end considering the reality that one of the many reasons Jesus came to die was to lead us to worship God as we should. God created us to worship Him and enjoy Him forever. Sin, however, came into the world and distorted worship, leading us to worship all sorts of other things. Some things that we shouldn't be worshiping at all. Other things that are good things, but we make them into ultimate things, and thus we make them a bad thing. And in all of this, we think all too little 
about the very God who created us. And one of the many reasons Jesus came to die was to flip that. One of the reasons he came to die was to right what went wrong at the fall. And of the many implications of that is that his people, those for whom Christ died very particularly, that they would worship him. You see, worship is the proper response of every single believer to what God has done for us in Christ. And as we think through this today, we are going to see that true worship True biblical worship is empowered by the Holy Spirit where new creatures, new creations in Christ begin to treasure God above competing affections. We'll see how this internal treasuring wells up into outward praise and the praise of an ongoing transformation of life in line with what we see the Scriptures teach about God and our worship of Him. We'll also talk about how worship encompasses all of life, right? We don't need a temple. And yet, and yet, believers worship in a very important, in fact, biblically mandated way when we come together like we're doing right now and worship corporately with other fellow worshipers. So, Let me invite you to turn with me in your Bibles, if you're not already there, to Romans 12, verses 1 through 2. Let me just say up front, this sermon is not an exposition of this wonderful text. We'll have to save that for another time, but this is a great passage to get us thinking about this idea of biblical worship. So if you look at your outline, we're going to start with the idea that worship is a response of all believers to what God has done for us in Christ. So Romans 12, 1 through 2, again. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Among everything else we might say about worship, we must recognize that worship is fundamentally a response. Worship is a response to something that is or something that has been done. And in the case of Christian worship, It is a response to who God is and what He's done for us in Christ. Romans 12, 1 through 2 is perhaps the quintessential example of this idea. Here Paul says, I appeal to you, therefore, some of your translations have the therefore at the very beginning, therefore, I appeal to you. Now this word, therefore, is vital to our understanding of the passage and thus our understanding of worship. Now, this word is an inference. In other words, because of everything Paul said up to this point, he's now appealing to us to worship. When you have the word, therefore, you want to know, as the reader, 
What's it pointing back to? How, how far is it pointing back? And here theologians are essentially unanimous. This one points all the way back to the whole of chapters 1 through 11. And, and this is helpful because while the letter of Romans is not a systematic theology of salvation, it does have some of the most comprehensive teaching of nature of who God is, what He's done for us in and through the Lord Jesus Christ. In other words, Romans 1 through 11 has some of the most comprehensive teaching in all of the Bible about the gospel. Paul begins the whole letter saying, I am not ashamed of the gospel. He tells us why. He says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel because it's the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. I mean, think back for a couple of minutes on just some key points in the book of Romans, chapters 1 through 11. In, in Romans 1, 18 through 32, Paul makes it clear that the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness. After that, in chapters 1 through 3, we see, uh-oh, that's against us, the wrath of God. Because here we see all of us have sinned, both Jews and Gentiles alike. No one, not a single person is intrinsically righteous. Not one of us are born being right with God. Flip back a few pages to Romans chapter 3. Listen to the words of verses 9 through 18. This really levels the playing field. What then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all both Jews and Greeks, here in this context, that means everybody in the world, both Jews and Greeks are under sin. As it is written, listen to these words, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God, all have turned aside, together they have become worthless, no one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave, they use their tongues to deceive, the venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery. In the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. It's not a great biography. But praise God, as you proceed on in chapters 3 through 5, Paul goes on to give us a beautiful description of the gospel, the good news of how sinners like us can be made right with God by faith in the finished work of Jesus on the cross, and how at the cross God demonstrated that he was both just and the justifier of those who would believe. Chapters 6 through 8 go on and describe how the, how the gospel changes our lives, how we're no longer slaves to sin. While we still struggle, by the power of the Holy Spirit, we are able to say no to sin and yes to Christ with our lives. Romans 8, we're told one of the most beautiful things any human being can be told, that because of Jesus, there is now no condemnation, no condemnation for those who are in Christ. Chapters 9 through 11 teach us how God has taken people that are so remarkably different and brought them together to have fellowship with one another, love one another, live at peace with one another because of this gospel. And in light of all of this, in light of the glory of the gospel, in light of Jesus' death on the cross, 
Paul says in chapter 12, verse 1, Therefore, because all God has done for us in Christ, let us live our lives as a living sacrifice, which is your spiritual worship. See here, holy scripture is making it clear worship is a response. It is a response of all believers to who God is and what he's done. It's it's a response to the gospel. It's a response to God's gracious act of redeeming sinners like you and me, saving us from the very wrath we deserve, and in his grace, destining us for eternity with him. Now, you might be here this morning, and you've never truly worshiped the one true God. For the very first act of true biblical worship is agreeing with God and admitting that you're a sinner, that you've rebelled against God, and seeing the greatness of God and your utter sinfulness, and confessing your need for Christ as your Savior, confessing with all sincerity that you're submitting your life to Christ as Lord, your Master, your King, whom you'll seek to live the rest of your life trying to honor. If that's you, I would plead with you, even now, where you're sitting, to look to Christ. Believe on Jesus today. For those who do trust in Christ, the rest of life, the rest of life is tied to worship. And and, and as worship is fundamentally a response to the gospel, we want to be clear and stay clear. We don't worship to earn God's love. We don't go through the motions of worship in some ludicrous way to kind of get God to be gracious to us. Maybe if I worship, maybe if I do these things, he'll bring me back into his good graces because I've failed him yet again. No, no, no. We worship as a response the gospel as a response to who God is and what he's done for us in Christ. 1 John 4, 19 drives us home. We love, we love because he first loved us. That's where our love, that's where our worship comes from. It comes as a response of seeing God through the gospel as infinitely beautiful, glorious, kind, and good, and worthy of our adoration, our praise, our worship. And yet we know from scriptures that this kind of worship will never happen unless it's empowered by the Holy Spirit. You see this in John's gospel. In in, in the fourth chapter of the gospel of John, Jesus says, the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit by the Spirit, and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship Him. God is Spirit, and those who worship Him must worship in Spirit and in truth. See, this kind of worship that the Bible commends to us only happens when the Holy Spirit dwells inside of us. So that only happens after conversion. So, so here's, a, here's a question that we must be clear on, because you hear all sorts of talk in our world about worship. But we must be clear on this. This is not politically correct, but here goes. 
can an unbeliever, can a non-Christian worship the one true living God? And the answer is no. They can't. They worship idols, but they don't worship God. Again, I know that's not PC in our day, but that is biblical. True worship of God only happens when the Holy Spirit quickens the heart of those who were spiritually dead before He did that. It doesn't happen until He gives us new eyes to see the work of Christ as infinitely glorious and empowers them to repent and believe, which is the very first act of Christ-honoring worship. And then He empowers all subsequent worship. Philippians 3.3, Paul says, we are the circumcision. In that context, he's saying we're the true people of God. We are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. A vital part of this work of the Spirit in conversion is that, again, He opens blind eyes, eyes that were previously blind. He opens our eyes to see what God has done for us in Christ. And then, with new eyes, we see this as so wonderful that other things begin to lose their value by way of comparison. On your outline, this is treasuring God above all competing affections. It's closely tied to prizing that leads to praising and prizing that leads to transformation that we'll get into, but these are important, and I just want to pull them apart to think about them. A great text on this idea of treasuring God above competing affections is Matthew 13, verses 44 through 46. Listen to Jesus here. He says, The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has, buys that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls, who in finding one pearl of great value went and sold all that he had and bought it. See, Jesus is painting this picture for us to drive home the point that the kingdom of God, that being a part of the kingdom is so incredibly wonderful. It is such an immense treasure that all else pales in comparison. The gospel is so glorious that all things, all things, our finances, work, our hobbies, everything lose their luster by way of comparison. Now, saying that, it's not saying these things are not important at all. It's simply highlighting the degree to which the gospel becomes our highest treasure. Now, we do understand, don't we, that we walk through ebbs and flows here. We got into that last week. And so here, it would be a useful thing to ask ourselves frequently, is the gospel right now for me that treasure hidden in a field? And if, when, we find ourselves to be 
in a place where we can't answer yes to that? Right? We might find ourselves to be in a place where we're walking through a dry season. You're a believer, but the gospel's lost a bit of its luster. We need to recognize that, don't we? And we, we shouldn't be okay with that. And we certainly shouldn't want to stay there. We want to take advantage of the ordinary means of grace God has given us. We want to take advantage of things like reading and meditating on Holy Scripture. We want to take advantage of things like prayer and corporate worship, doing what we're doing now, sitting under the Word being preached, having fellowship with other brothers and sisters in Christ, as through these things, the Lord in His grace continues to do what? What's He, what's he do? He reminds us of the gospel. We're reminded through these things, oh yeah, we don't deserve God's grace. It's real easy to get into that faulty thinking. Somehow, somewhere along the way, I deserved His grace. No, no, no. I don't deserve it. Yet he freely gives it to all who come to Christ. We're reminded we've got this amazing, glorious, stunning inheritance waiting for us no matter what we're currently walking through. And we need these reminders, don't we? As through them, the Lord warms our heart. Through the ordinary means of grace, the Lord brings us back to a place where there's genuine internal prizing of the gospel. And then and only then, does that internal prizing of God, this treasuring of God above all competing affections, well up into genuine praising of God? I, I like how John Piper puts it. We talk about praising God as an act of worship, but Piper says there's no real praising of God that doesn't begin with internal prizing of God. Now, see, first there's this, there's this internal prizing that happens in our hearts as we consider who we are, what we deserve, what God's done for us in Christ, and this internal prizing wells up into outward praise. Dia Carson paints what I think is a great picture of this in, in, in talking about the inspiration of the Psalms. He says something along the lines of, do you even remotely read the Psalms? And picture God calling out to David after a long day in the field. Hey, David, what? I need you to write some scripture today. All right, let's do this. David, write this. Oh, God, you are my God. Really? Write it. Oh, God, you are my God. I shall seek you earnestly. I shall seek you earnestly. My soul thirsts for you. Really? Write it. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh yearns for you in a dry, weary land where there's no water. No. Right? We know that's not how it went. David, being carried along by the Holy Spirit, was prizing God in his heart, probably out in the field, wherever he was, and just prizing God, and he, and he comes in and sits down with joy and overflows into, oh God, you are my God. Internal prizing leads to genuine external praising. God's Word also tells us that this prizing not only leads to praising, but it also wells up into the worship that is an ongoing transformation of life. Look back at Romans 12, so helpful here. Romans 12. 
I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Here we're told that our prizing of God, remember the, the therefore, our prizing of God brings about the response of living our lives as a living sacrifice, which Paul says is worship. Now, this could be a little bit hard to understand, but verse 2 goes on to further describe what presenting our bodies as a living sacrifice means. There Paul says, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed. Now, what's that mean? How do we go about doing that? And moreover, how is that worship? Here we, here we need to make sure we see the link between the negative, do not be conformed, and the positive, be transformed. And these two are linked together, so you've got to take them together. And when we do, we get an understanding of how this is worship. This is, this is heart change that Paul's talking about. This is a working from the inside out. Our, our minds are being transformed as we understand who God is and what He's done for us in Christ. And therefore, we're slowly breaking the pattern of being conformed to the world. The world, over time, begins to lose some of the appeal it once had because our minds are being transformed as we grow in our understanding, again, of who God is, what He's done for us. And then we're able to, as Paul says, test and approve and see that the will of God is good and glorious and desirous. Some of you have heard me refer to Thomas Chalmers' sermon, Expulsive Power of a New Affection. If you've never read that, do yourself a favor. You can Google it. Thomas Chalmers, The Expulsive Power of a new affection. He, he rightly argues, long time ago, so you can see that this is just God's truth, he rightly argues, right along with what we've been talking about, that no one will destroy their love for the world by merely fighting against their love for the world. He says, you're not going to just say, I'm going to fight lust and have victory. You're not going to say, I'm going to fight alcoholism. I'm just going to white-knuckle this. You're not going to say, I'm just going to, I'm going to fight selfishness. Self, quit being selfish. No. He says our love for the world can only be conquered by a new and greater affection, something that usurps that previous love. My boys and I went dove hunting this weekend. It was, a, it was a great time. And we came out of the field, and we were absolutely famished. We were starving. We felt like we were starving. And so we drove over to a QT, and let me tell you, those taquitos that roll on the little thing, those things looked amazing. I mean, they look, mouth was watering just looking at them. And when I bit into it, it was the best food I had ever had. It was just fantastic. Now, that taquito was quite the love for me at that moment. But if, let's say this afternoon or another time, if somebody put before me taquitos from QT and a Johnny Galan prepared New York strip, rare, the taquito 
looks like low-grade dog food by comparison, right? And so it is when this new affection is the gospel, and it becomes infectious. It's then that it radically changes our lives from the inside out. Now the things of the world lose some of their appeal. Now we want to do the will of God. Not, not that we won't struggle with the things of the world. We certainly will, right? The old man, the sin nature is alive and kicking. But these things don't have the same power over us they once did. And this, this life transformation, this, this willful choosing to live, to glorify God, this saying no to sin and yes to Christ, that's worship. Look at Romans 12 and listen close. Every single time, every time you are tempted to sin and you say, no, Christ is better. I choose Christ. I'm not going down that path. I choose Christ. That's worship. It's worship. Spiritual service of worship, as holy inspired scripture says. And of course, this kind of worship then isn't all of life experience, isn't it? We can and should worship God wherever we are. Some people say, I don't go to church, I can worship God wherever they are. Well, yeah, you should worship God wherever you are. That doesn't lead to, I shouldn't go to church. We'll get to that in a, in a minute. But, but what worship, what, what the Bible's talking about is indeed an all of life experience. We can indeed worship God wherever we are, whatever we do, 1 Corinthians 10, 31. Whether you eat, drink, or whatever you do, do all things to the glory of God. When we live gospel-centered lives, we worship in all of life. When we eat bacon and eggs in the morning, when we drink a glass of orange juice or whatever, when we go to work, when we change diapers, whatever it is. Now, again, this is not to say this is easy. That would be painting a wrong picture. It's not to say this always comes naturally. No, no, the truth is, you want to know what's easy? It's easy to get our eyes off of the gospel and, and, and focused onto a competing affection, uh, uh, focused onto an idol. Certainly, it's easy to just focus on our own situation, right? We quickly become navel gazers. We, we can get focused on work, perhaps that surly coworker that we have to deal with yet again. Or we can, as parents with young kids, get caught up in the children fighting yet again, or maybe financial struggles. And these things quickly can get our attention off of Christ in the blink of an eye. Move from worship to grumbling and complaining rather than focusing on the gospel and giving thanks to God and worshiping Him through all things. Think of some of the hardest things that you might be dealing with right now and ask yourself, how can I glorify God in this? Remember, God's Word tells us that Job bowed down and worshiped when he lost everything. The Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. When you read that narrative, it's clear he wasn't jumping up and down driven by situational happiness, right? Worship is sometimes nothing short of trusting the Lord in painful circumstances and holding fast, even in the midst of the pain, that He is indeed good. 
even when you might have a hard time seeing it. That's worship. And this is one of the countless reasons why what we call corporate worship or gathered worship is so important in our lives. It is one of the very means that God has ordained for His people to stoke the fire of worship. Think about it. Corporate worship is a vital and biblically mandated, not recommended, mandated means by which God continues to remind us of the gospel. He continues to remind us of His glorious promises, to point us to eternity in the new heaven and new earth. And thus, in and through gathered worship, He continues to stoke that internal flame that wells up into outward praise and ongoing transformation of life. This is no doubt one of the reasons we see that gathering together with our local church is something that is both commanded and expected of all believers when you read the Bible. I mean, read the New Testament. There's not this category for sort of a Lone Ranger Christian. There's just this expectation that you're a part of the body. The New Testament doesn't make sense if it's not in the context of you living your life in the context of a body. If we had time, we could look at passage after passage to see the importance God's Word puts on what we're doing together, not least of which Hebrews 10 that commands us, do not forsake what we're doing right now. And you can look at a slew of other texts that show us, give us pictures of what we're doing. The fact is, Holy Scripture places a big emphasis on our weekly gathering. It's not tangential to the Christian faith like so many in American Christianity take it to be. According to the Scriptures, it's vital. And so let's just think for a few moments of some of the things that we do together when we worship corporately. Start with singing. If you've been around this church for any period of time, hopefully you've seen that we seek to sing Christ-honoring, Christ-exalting songs. And tied in with what we've been saying, there's certainly times where our singing of such songs is nothing short of that internal treasuring of God that wells up into external praising. I'm sure we've all experienced that. But there are also times we might be struggling. Perhaps singing at times more along the lines of, Lord, help me. Help me really mean this. Help me really believe this. Sometimes we're internally prizing and thus externally singing, Jesus, thank you. Other times with sincerity of heart, we're singing, Lord, I'm prone to wander. Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave you, the God I love. But Here's my heart. Take it. Seal it. Seal it for your courts above. Each kind of singing has its place. And the fact that we do this together as a church is an added blessing. Because we can look around, perhaps in times of doubt, and see, wait a minute, my brothers and sisters also believe this. My brothers and sisters are singing back to God, yes, but they're also singing the gospel to me. And my heart's encouraged. So as we sing, we want to celebrate. Perhaps some songs call us to examine ourselves. Take the time to do that as well. As all of what we do together is designed to cause our lives to become more and more conformed into the image of Christ, worshiping God with our lives. Which leads us right into the thought of worship through the reading of Scripture or worship through the preaching of the Word. 
Sometimes I hear things like this. Look, I understand how singing is worship. That that just kind of makes sense. But how is just sitting there listening to somebody reading the scriptures or some dude up front preaching? How's that worship? And, And here it's probably important to say that you can certainly listen to scriptures being read and sermons being preached and it not be worship, right? It's certainly not worship to just kind of sit there listening passively, enduring yet another long scripture reading or kind of checking our watch, you know, wondering when the long-winded pastor is going to finish up so we can get to lunch. And when we're doing that, we're probably not engaging in worship, at least not the worship of God. But, But when we're listening actively, when we're thanking and praising God, even in the midst of a sermon, you ever have that moment, right? Something said, and it's like, praise God, thank you, Lord. We're, we're reminded of what he's done. That's worship. When, when we're listening actively and we're convicted of sin, and, and, and right there in our seat, perhaps silently confess that and ask God for the help to repent, that's worship. You see, the reading of the scriptures and the preaching of the scriptures is nothing short of the privilege of getting to hear the word of God that we know is living and active and does its good work in our lives. Now, that's why we read the scriptures every time we come together, every time. That's why we're not afraid to read long passages of the Bible. I mean, it's holy scripture after all. That's why our sermons, Lord willing, come straight from the scriptures, and they're typically not short, because we value this time together. See, the purpose for such biblical sermons is that we better understand God's gracious plan of redemption, and thus grow in our adoration of Him and our desire to glorify Him in all we do. Each week, we have the opportunity to worship through corporate prayer, right, as we pray along with one of our elders. I led our time this morning. Again, rightly processed, this is certainly an act of worship. Consider for a moment what prayer really is. When we really understand prayer, we realize it's, it's humbling. I honestly think it's one of the reasons the prayer gathering in any local church is the lowest attendance of any gathering. It's humbling. Think about it. Why do we pray? Yes, we give thanks. Yes, we make requests. But fundamentally, isn't prayer saying, I need you. I, I need you. It's a little bit scary when we think about why we don't pray. We're in that messed up moment in our head thinking, I don't really need God right now. But when we pray, we're saying, I'm weak, you're strong. We're saying, I don't know everything, you're sovereign over all things. We're saying, I can't, you can, I need you. And so when we pray, we don't want to sit passively as our minds wander about the week ahead. We, we, we want to pray along with those leading pastoral prayer, perhaps with an amen of agreement, silently praying along with those leading us. You know, each week we have the opportunity to worship through giving. Well, we don't pass a plate at this church. We have our reasons for that, not least of which we think some sort of offering box seems to be what most in line with what we see in the Scripture, but there's, you know, we wouldn't put tons of weight on that, but, but we do very much value this idea of worship through giving. Jesus teaching teaches us that our, our giving shows what we're treasuring. Our giving shows where our hearts are. 
And, 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 and this is important because Jesus also teaches us that our hearts are followers. Where your treasure is, there your heart will be. That's a follower. If my treasure's here, you know, my heart's going to follow. If my treasure's here, right? And so we can train our hearts to be set on a hobby, on a particular stock, or just about anything we're putting our hard-earned money toward. And, and giving, storing up treasures in heaven is an act of worship, right? We're saying Jesus and his kingdom is my treasure. Uh, unbelievers would say, you're crazy giving away that kind of money. But we're saying, no, Jesus is my treasure. In the book of Philippians, Paul describes the Philippians giving as a fragrant offering and a sacrifice acceptable to God. That's what we want, right? Our, our giving to be a fragrant offering to God. We want to be people who, as an act of worship, give, as we say in our, in our uh, church covenant, regularly, sacrificially, and with a joyful heart. Because, as Paul says, God loves a cheerful giver. And, of course, each week we all have the opportunity to worship through interacting with those around us. Whether it's biblical fellowship, right, interacting with a covenant member. Boy, that's a sweet moment. Or, or perhaps it's making somebody new feel welcome. Well, that's worship as well. And lastly, we'll end on this. How about the Lord's Supper, which we're going to transition into? What an amazing act of worship, right? I don't know about you, but I need to be reminded I need to be reminded right now that Christ's body is broken for me. I can forget that. Christ's body is broken for me. And in my own sin and sinful thoughts towards, yes, even other, un, even other believers, I also need to be reminded Christ's body was broken for my brothers and sisters. Christ's blood was shed for my brothers and sisters. That's what we get to do when we partake of this, isn't it? And we want to give thanks for this. The Lord's Supper is an important, important time. Bab talked earlier about our confession of sin. The Lord's Supper is certainly a time when we think about what the Bible teaches about the Lord's Supper. It's a time where we would want to confess our sin. We don't want to partake in an unworthy manner. But it's also a time as we confess our sin to be reminded that every single sin, past, present, and future, was nailed to the cross with Christ and paid in full. And so we worship as we give thanks to God for this. We worship as we're reminded we didn't earn this. We worship as we're reminded my only hope in this life and the next is that Christ's body was broken for me and his blood was shed for me. I'm going to pray and we're going to transition into this time of worship where we're going to partake of the Lord's Supper together. Father, we do thank you for your word. Lord, we thank you for this moment, this time that we get to together consider what Christ has done for us. And so, Lord, we pray that you would continue to have your way with us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.